Hey folks, welcome back. Hello, come. This is Andy, and this is the Poor Pearls Almanac. When you think of collapse, think of the knack or something. You're not good at this. No. Happy Halloween, listeners. Uh, here at the PPA, the scariest thing that we can think of is going through collapse without the knowledge or knowing that you can make coffee out of acorns, and that willow bark can be used as an emergency aspirin. And of course, that root vegetables can also be used as lanterns, kids. Don't forget that one. Isn't that a jack-o'-lantern? Or- It's a, like a lantern out of a gourd? Or a John-o'-lantern, Jack-John, it's the same thing. So, I guess it's Halloween, right? Or Al Hallows Eve, or Samhain, the Gaelic Fall and Equinox Festival and Harvest Times and stuff like that, right? Yeah, it's the season for season seasoning, brought to you by we Lowry's. Know, we all know where this is going, yep. The spice that's nice for all of your rice, but probably not pumpkins. Hashtag Lowry's gang. I don't know, man. I'm thinking of like baked pumpkin seeds with Lowry's. Might not be terrible. Yeah. I was trying to roast, come up with a pun. I got roast nothing. Them, roast them. With some Lowry's. I mean, we, we might have to try it. Yeah. Papitas with Lowry's. Lauritas. Mmm. Tasty. Lauritas with margaritas and all your fajitas. I can't drink anymore. I'm so hungover right now. <laughs> there you go. So speaking of that spice, let's get into that spicy, spicy content. A uh, week ago, we had discussed the basics of civil pasture and how to frame the practice of forested pasturing around native species and how to work within to mix and match that type of a system. From there, we need to take a look at what the landscape can handle. And to do that, we need to look towards Alan Savory's work in restoring landscapes, and more specifically, the categorical conditions he uses to define which solutions will best improve soils. Yeah, I know he's problematic, but it doesn't make the research he did any less useful. And there are plenty of folks that have gone and proven that many of the things that he's claimed are essentially accurate. And he really just generally talks about this concept of brittleness and whether or not an environment is brittle. You mean to tell me that that asshole's responsible for peanut brittle? What, what are we talking about? Maybe. I don't actually know, but he is responsible to an extent for our understanding of the need to use intensive grazing or fire in specific types of ecologies, what we call brittle ecologies. Now, we traditionally think of the term brittle to mean fragile, and that's really not quite it. Brittleness is not the same as fragility. When we talk about brittleness, we are specifically talking about how easily a site can desertify. Fragile environments can exist in non-brittle places. Think like slow-growing ferns that could easily get wiped out in a forest versus resilient environments in brittle places like the savannas of Africa. An environment's vulnerability to desertification is often tied to low rainfall, but that's not the full explanation of brittleness. What makes any environment's position on the brittleness scale change is not so much from total rainfall as from the distribution of that precipitation and humidity throughout the year. So towards the very brittle end of the scale, environments typically experience erratic distribution of both precipitation and humidity during the year. The pattern really determines that degree of brittleness. So for example, if we're talking about some place that has 30 inches of rainfall a year, if that rainfall is in three weeks, then it's probably a really brittle environment. Whereas if that 30 inches is scattered throughout the full season, that's probably not a brittle environment. So this distribution is more important than the actual amount of rain itself. In completely non-brittle environments, that precipitation and humidity would be fairly consistent. It's not just rainfall with this impact, but elevation, winds, 
prevailing winds, and any distribution of humidity that can further create those brittle or non-brittle environments. Sorry, I'm still stuck on Grammy's peanut brittle because you said brittle so many times and it's the only time I used that word. I don't think I used the word brittle as much as you did in the past 30 seconds or so. It's all right. I probably haven't used it more than the amount of times I've used it in the last 30 seconds either. So So we got these brittle savannas. We're the brittle brothers. I'm not. You're, you're brittle. You call me brittle? Yeah. I'm not sure how what that means, but I feel like I should be offended. You're cracked. You can crack easy. Yeah. Just apply a little bit of pressure, Andy cracks. Yeah. If we think back to those first episodes on complex systems where we weren't talking about necessarily brittleness, but extremes, whether in temperature, sunlight access, rainfall, and so on, those impacts end up reducing the complexity of a system because specialists have to develop and evolve for those specific climactic conditions, which ultimately reduces overall diversity. Fragility can do the same thing, or extremes rather can do the same thing, but it's about that consistency. The consistency can create more damage even in ecosystems that otherwise would be potentially super diverse. So that's something we see, um, you know, you could look at like the Arctic. The Arctic is a fragile ecosystem because of how extreme it is, but it's not necessarily a brittle system because there's that consistency. So this this concept plays out and um, can reflect the ease in which cascading failures can take place in an ecosystem. So this core component of all life, water, which is the primary thing that drives brittleness, or not just through its existence or lack thereof, but how it exists and interacts through the landscape through time. So when we think about water entering a system, it can happen in massive pools or it can happen in, again, those those little drops that we have. But the impact of water on the landscape and its consistency on the landscape is really the most important thing. So do we have to thank beavers again? We're always thanking beavers. Thank the beavers. Thank the beavers. So savory points specifically to these types of brittle environments is areas where we can see the necessary role of animals in an environment to prevent desertification. So like, let's rewind a little bit. How does the standing grass that's in any pasture break down and return the nutrients to the earth? Generally speaking, it's a series of either grazers or other actions that return those nutrients to the soil. That can be fire. And again, typically we think of when we're talking about like pastures and things like that is grazers. Without these grazers, only a small proportion of the vegetation produced is able to decay. Most is left to break down chemically through oxidization. The same process that's at work rusting metal, although dead plant material turns gray and then black rather than reddish brown, or physically through weathering where wind, rain, and hail can very gradually wear them down. Meanwhile, animal droppings will break down in as little as a few weeks. And those starchy grasses, like think about your bale of hay for Halloween that you've got out right now. If you leave that there, even for a year, it's mostly still going to kind of look like a bale of hay. Like it'll it'll start breaking down, but like you you still know what it is. It's not like a pile of dirt. So like that's a really good way to kind of see what we're talking about in action. Either you can have essentially fields that are bales of hay that have not been chopped down and just sit there drying out in the sun and not making any progress and returning those nutrients to the earth, or something can come through and break it down. And again, traditionally, that's either been through animals grazing or it's through fire. So those are the two primary ways to accelerate this process. So we can assist in this process by managing the landscapes, whether again, that's through fire or by having animals graze. 
As the ability of plants to decompose and recycle their nutrients is crucial to the health of the whole environment, determining that degree of brittleness becomes a really important factor in the management of any environment. So it's not to say that you can't graze or intensively graze in non-brittle environments, but rather that it's more important in those brittle environments to have that accelerant, whatever it might be. In this case, we're talking about animals as something that can return those nutrients quickly and allow the process to continue moving forward. And we've talked about evidence of this happening, and it's not just theoretical. I think this is where the slash and burn management techniques come into play, or is this different? Yeah. So like I said, fire management is something that's been done traditionally to manage landscapes. And it allows for new grass, especially in the springs, to come through and give really great forage for wildlife. Or if we're talking about animals that we're raising, domestic animals. Those fresh new shoots in the spring can't happen if you don't essentially remove that dead material, particularly, again, in those more brittle spaces where you don't have as much of that moisture that's helping accelerate that process. You need something else to do it. We also talked about grazing with Dr. Dan Rubenstein, and that would be the other side of that conversation with the grazing, returning nutrients with animals, eating what they can, and their droppings are returning the nutrients because they've already broken it down a bit quicker than weathering and the slow process of chemical decay. And, you know, it's not just the animals eating and, you know, leaving droppings and fertilizing the soil and all of that, which is obviously important. But further, they help a break down by stomping and pressing everything back into the earth, mm -hmm. giving that surface contact and allowing that process to accelerate by getting the, the microorganisms in the soil to access the nutrients in those grasses that they don't eat because they're not going to eat everything. Right. And it's important to remember that like naturally soil doesn't want to be bare. If you think about like your garden, you can't seem to slow the weeds down from surging up from the ground. So if it is remaining without plants, like you might see in a, a savanna that's not having any animals, it's a sign that either the nutrients aren't available or there hasn't been any seeds that have been dropped with any organic matter for it to sprout up from. Okay, so me piecing this together ever so slowly on my journey to learning about all things nature -y, this brings to mind carrying capacity, which we've talked about before. Is brittleness directly correlated to carrying capacity because too many or not enough of a specialized species can affect brittleness along with changes in you know precipitation and the physical landscape itself? So while species diversity isn't necessarily related to brittleness, it does relate to resilience. Think of brittleness being like net energy in, net energy out, like a bank account. If you worked and auto paid your bills and spent no money, would you slowly go to zero dollars or would you slowly get rich? That's the brittleness or non-brittleness of a site, how it responds without specific intervention. So dealing with these brittle sites is slightly different. Those brittle sites have their own challenges compiled on the non-brittle cycles of minimal seed dispersal in the soil, and extreme weather means that overgrazing can still happen in a few ways. One being because of soil and plant depletion, animals won't often get adequate nutrients from the plants they're eating because of, say, limited selection, and possibly because, you know, with limited rainfall, they may not bounce back as quickly. Animals will continue to forage in order to meet all of their dietary requirements, and in sites with limited nutritional availability, because again, there isn't that nutrient cycling happening, this can lead to overgrazing and not necessarily just a species, but the species that they're most capable of breaking down and digesting and converting efficiently into something that they can use. If the things that they like the most aren't available, they'll eat those other things, which 
can be a good thing, or it could lead to the the species that they eat the least of taking over the site because they're not eating a ton of it, and now that all that's left is stuff that doesn't really benefit them that well. They'll eat it, but it might not be the most nutritional, which means they'll eat more, which might either lead to overgrazing or it'll just lead to nutritional deficiencies. And you can see how that becomes super problematic. And this is where having multiple species grazing can be a benefit because then those species that are best for each type of grass or forb are getting their maximum utility out of it. If we think about the first episode we did, it's all about aligning and making the most efficient resources available to the most efficient grazers because that's that's what complex systems is. It's making these things as uh, diverse, resilient, and efficient as possible by aligning the right grazer with the right plant. Now, if you remove all of those things, suddenly you've got animals doing more work for the same amount of calories or even less. And it's one small piece of how the brittleness cycle can quickly devolve and destroy ecologies. Yeah, I mean, that's that's really complex and complicated. Uh, nothing's ever easy with you, so thank you. But You're welcome. This does bring us back to our very first episode where we talk about complex systems. Everything that you just described is uh, this is a way to fight entropy. It's a way to keep energy and nutrients in the system. And the way to do that efficiently is with multi-species so that they specialize in one specific plant or another and that one isn't being overgrazed and that secondary plant isn't being overrun. Everything is sort of managed, I guess, evenly, like an even distribution. But those nutrients aren't going to waste because one part of those specialized species or those niche players are going to utilize it. It's a very sexy way to put it, Elliot. Yeah, come on. Let's make silvopasture sexy. And if y'all could see the face of Matt, our camera guy right now. I hate it here. I hate it here. I hate it here. I are you looking for a sexy Halloween costume with an ecological twist? Come on down to the Poor Paroles Farming Emporium and Sexy Halloween Warehouse, where we have such favorites as Sexy Upper Middle Class Farmer, Sexy Goat, Teats Optional, Sexy Vermectin, Sexy Perennial Fruit and Nut Trees, Sexy Swale and Pond Systems, and Blueberry Bush. Find us at our new home on the web, poorproles.com. So as we've talked about this process of running grazers through a landscape, especially in brittle environments, either way, the, the animal cycling process is pretty similar. But what's important to remember is the, the necessity of it for the landscape and that it will fall apart without it in a brittle landscape. So when we think of animals grazing, we generally think of one animal, although there can be many. So when we're talking about multi-species grazing or animal polycultures, it's really an exercise in creating carefully designed leader follower mob stocked or silvopasture grazing systems. So I know that was a lot. Let me unpack it just a little bit. Please do. Leader follower grazing systems are those where one animal type is led into a paddock first. Once it's eaten its preferred foods in the first paddock, it rotates to the next paddock and the next type of animal is turned in where the first had just recently left. Leader follower systems are able to outproduce other grazing systems for total weight gain because each animal is allowed to eat its optimal food first. So like we had just talked about overgrazing because there was limited nutrients in a plant, animals are designed to eat specific things, but they can often eat other things, just like humans. We're really designed for specific foods, but we can eat like a lot of other stuff. We might need to eat a whole lot more of it, but we can do it. The same with livestock. 
So what we're trying to do is make sure that our animals are eating the foods that they can produce into energy more quickly. Now, your first thought might be, well, then why don't we just create pastures that are one plant? Well, that flies in the face of complex systems, right? We don't want paddocks that have just one plant. They don't do well. It's not a long-term plan. No monocultures. Yeah, no monocultures. So we need to have multiple different species in our paddocks. And that means if we want to be efficient, that we need to think about how do we optimize the animals that we're running through our paddocks. So once the first animal goes through, that pasture is allowed ample recovery time before the original grazing animal returns to the paddock. And I said original grazing animal. We're not talking about the next species up. Silvopasture is the intentional combining of both livestock production and woody plants. So we've been talking a lot about the grazing component, but there are also woody plants. Think like trees and bushes and things like that. It's this intentional and intensive management of both the forage system and the woody crop that's important. Silvopasture isn't just letting your animals loose in the woods to graze. It's intensively managing an open canopy tree and forage system. We had talked about what grass needs in order to grow in terms of things like light. And if you want to review all that, again, go to the Amazing Graze episodes. So silvopasture is the intentional combining of both livestock production and woody plants. Silvopasture is not turning your animals loose in the woods to graze. It's intensively managing an open canopy tree and forage system. I'm not going to get into what appropriate grazing systems are in terms of sustainable pasture management. Like I said, we've done three episodes on it. They're called Amazing Graze. Go check it out if you want those specifics. But I'd rather focus on how we can utilize the tree crops within the confines of a grazing system, and specifically in this episode, the utility of multiple grazing animals that can go after different parts of the paddock. So this is the part of the series where we're finally um, combining the, uh, the talk of forestry and agroforestry and the tree part of it, and adding the pasture in with the animals. Exactly. So in this episode, we're specifically talking about the animals themselves and trying to focus on what the benefit of each animal is on the paddock so that we can integrate them in. And then in the next episode, we're going to tie all of this back together. Oh, okay. So this is just a teaser or a taste. I feel like every episode's a teaser for the next episode. Each episode springboards off of the previous content. I don't know who said that. I've never heard that in my life. But to really do all this stuff, we need to think about how do we create these resilient forests and also have the pasture system we want to do. And then again, how do the animals and the local biome align together to create the natural conditions for the soil and the biology of the soil, as well as to meet the climactic and other conditions that might impact the health of our trees? We can think about things like understanding how topography and soil type can impact tree growth, as we discussed in the forest ecology episode, and how that's particularly helpful in considering what our mature tree size might be, and how we can utilize different topographic spaces for different species which may have unique needs, especially if we are incorporating some non-native, unrelated trees on our site. We haven't yet covered how we should be considered of global warming, but we'll definitely cover that in the future. But we should definitely start thinking during this process about species that might be considered a marginal option because of heat or cold issues and what we can do to help that tree succeed in the short term. So, but that last bit you said, it does kind of bring me back to carrying capacity and brittle systems. All these species help, all these species help keep nutrients within the system. And that's where varied species can come in to specialize and fill niches. Yeah. 
In the grazing episode, we had talked a bit about species preference and the benefits of each type of grazer. We also talked about the various ways we can degrade pasture as well. Things like overstocking can degrade pastures by removing more living plant matter than what can regenerate before the next round of grazing happens. Understocking can degrade pastures when not followed up by finish mowing or another species in order to prevent undesirable plants from going to seed and ultimately taking over a pasture. So ultimately, by using different animals that like different plants, you get that overlap, which increases efficiency. Right. So in case you missed it, we did an interview with Dr. Dan Rubenstein, and you should go back and check it out because we go into depth about that as well. Yeah. So what we're talking about is that leader follower system. This system is explicitly designed based on the specifics of not just each different type of grazer, but the demands of specialists within that species. So for example, if we're running cattle through, which I know most folks here probably aren't interested in doing, you can apply this to a bunch of different species, but you might want to run your young calves through to get the cream of the crop, and then you'd introduce your actively milking cows, or if we're talking about another species, maybe sheep, since their dietary requirements are higher, and sending your calves to the next paddock, and then whatever other cows you might have. So your bulls might be last in this cow rotational system. Simple systems like this have been shown to increase total weight gain in calves and to not reduce milk yields from the cows. The system can be refined even further based on things like heaviest milkers, and so on. Most research of these types of systems involve cows, which I don't have a lot of experience with, but generally they're considered your first species in for grazing since they're more particular than other species when it comes to foraging. The order of operations generally goes like this. Cows, pigs, turkeys, sheep, chickens, geese and ducks, and then goats. Yeah, that's a few animals, right? Yeah, we're getting ready to do some animal algebra. Some serious animals. And yes, animal algebra. It's a thing. Get your number two pencils. There's going to be a test at the end. So despite seemingly being a lot, each represents different parts of our ecology in a dynamic system. While native megafauna here in North America are pretty much functionally extinct or extinct completely, cows fill that role in the ecosystem. Pigs, a small forager that is, well, pretty utilitarian, fills the role of the generalist in nature. For most of us, the native version of the pigs, not wild boars which are not native to North America, doesn't exist. Without going down a rabbit hole on the subject of evolution, we don't really have a fair comparison but they often operate as a generalist in any ecology, and their role was often taken by a vast number of different species like musk oxen, camels, and more. Turkeys are, well, turkeys, and have existed here forever, and sheep occupy the same space as something like the giant sloth may have had 10,000 years ago. Chickens and ducks are, well, birds and ducks, and goats and deer generally eat the same foods, given the opportunity. Obviously, it's a bit more complicated than this, and unless we wanted to dedicate an entire episode to this subject to cover the fact that it's not simply plug and play and almost more of an art than a hard science, this is as much as we can get into it. So much like when we covered the grazing content, we had talked about that despite possibly getting smaller, less productive animals, we're able to get significantly more animals. That process applies here, and we are getting more diversity in both how we are recycling nutrients, but also in our own diets from the variety of species we can work across one site. 
And this is where we've brought it back to talking about piggy banks and bacon. And is this a meat candy moment, perhaps? Is your meat candy a lollipop of bacon? Then yes. Go on. So yeah, let's jump into it. We covered the role of cows and what they'll forage, primarily grasses, and we covered which order they should forage in. So let's take a look at what should come through next. Pigs. Pigs are, of course, one of the most broadly omnivorous livestock. Left to themselves, they'll graze a fair amount of green forage, but prefer to root through the ground to eat things like grubs and worms and roots and all sorts of good stuff. Anyone who's spent time with a pig knows it will eat fruits and nuts, and they've even been known to dig up and eat snakes and rodents and ground-nesting birds. The plowing behavior of pigs, that is like when they shove their nose into the ground, can be used in the right place at the right time when you're trying to dig up new crops or you're getting ready to disturb a soil or you've got a bunch of vines like poison ivy that you're trying to get rid of. They can be a really good benefit in those types of situations. While that might be a drawback if you're putting them through a new pasture, the key with pigs is to make sure you work them through very quickly so they don't get bored. There's a lot more we can say about things like different breeds of pigs, but we really don't want to cover that right now. It's more about understanding their role in a silvopasture system, specifically as a cleanup tool. So the goal is to time our paddock rotation with when fruit drops and nut drops, specifically the insect damaged fruits and nuts, that the pigs can clean up before the main harvest. After the harvest, we can again bring those animals through and clean up any of the fruits or nuts that were missed by the humans who went through it first. With this pigs following cattle system, a rule of thumb would be to have no more than two pigs per cow. Fewer than two pigs per cow works fine too. With too many pigs, they'll just not have enough forage to thrive and they'll get hungry and begin to break through electric fences. Pigs are incredibly intelligent animals, and once they learn that it only takes one zap to run through an electric fence... They'll do that and just go to where they want to go. Yeah, I do know that domesticated pigs uh, can go feral in about two weeks. And that's extremely impressive because they still have strong traits that allow them to survive. And being an opportunistic omnivore doesn't hurt either. Suey pigs. Talking about rogue bacon. Free range, wild fed, wild raised, free range bacon. Yeah, it's open season on hogs pretty much everywhere in the U.S. right now. Yeah, and pigs are really the ultimate species, as far as I'm concerned. They can pretty much live through anything. Quick plug, if you want to learn about nuclear pigs, subscribe to our Patreon. Darkness. 14 million homes without inhabitants. The silence slips through the window sashes. Rust and chromium sludge coat the sink as a rogue coffee mug emblazoned with World's okayest boss sits proudly beside the drip. The drip. It slowly digs through the sink and onto the subfloor and fingers its way through the foundation where it worms into the core of the earth and splits the planet into a million particles. You blink. The sink is static. The dread fills you as you see the flashing lights in the distance. This Halloween, be prepared for the most frightening thing of all. Another day under capitalism. Interested in supporting an alternative? Visit poorproles.com to find out more. But anyways, 
back to the order of grazing operations. Did you just bring up radioactive pigs and you're just going to breeze right past it? Yeah. Right on. So once your cattle have grazed their few bites and the pigs have come up to clean behind the cattle, turkeys are really a great choice to follow up. They'll nibble on grasses and forbs and, and they'll eat pretty much whatever's left for them, but they really prefer things like big seeds and insects. And at this point, all the dung that's left behind is going to start getting all the bugs in it, and they're just going to rip right through it. It's like a buffet for them. So they'll start breaking down those insects and all those seeds and break them down and just really rip everything up and start picking at some of the big pieces of grass and things like that. So many of these pasture weeds that they tend to like don't provide the best forage for cattle and pigs and generally are the ones that we're trying to get rid of. So these large weeds and seeds that they drop will be eaten up by the turkeys and really ground into oblivion within the bird's gizzard. Fun fact, phosphorus, one of the Corn Belt's most deficient mineral nutrients, was once brought into the region by the ton as migrating birds gobbled up Gulf of Mexico seafood and pooped their way up the Mississippi flyway, leaving behind a wake of fertility. Now we no longer have passenger pigeons, so we have to really use our domestic fowl to start to provide some of those nutrients and return these minerals to the soil. It's all about aligning the ecology's needs with our own, and this is a really fantastic example of how we can mitigate the damage we've done while also feeding ourselves. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure that's why everybody listens to the Poor Pearls Almanac, is to learn about why guano is so important. You love guano. Shikaka. Shikaka. I'm making you turkey guano bowls for your birthday. Am I supposed to eat it? You're supposed to eat off of it. You gotta lick it. That's what I've been told by Ace Ventura. Mm. So turkeys, specifically the more intelligent heritage breeds, are actually pretty low maintenance, and only one flock really needs to be raised during the summer grazing season. By the time the best grass is finished in the northern regions, it's time to send turkeys to freezer camp. Approximately two turkeys per hog is really an adequate number. And if you're keeping up with your animal algebra, I don't know how many animals that is. It's a lot. It's a lot more than Elliot has. So at this point, one or more waves of cattle's gone through, you've had the pigs come through, and now you've had some turkeys eat all the bugs and start tearing apart all the cow dung. So what's left? Anyone who's watched this process happen will notice that the first plants to rebound after the grazing pressure are the ones that were least preferred by cattle and probably not eaten by the hogs. The turkeys don't have a huge impact on the pasture itself, so that green growth that just got stepped on and never was eaten begins to rebound. First up from the ground are the plants, mostly the biennials and perennials that have those large fleshy roots with lots of stored energy that can help the plant jump back really quickly. Other plants left behind are the ones that most people would call invasive. Plants quick to respond include things like dandelions, cow parsnips, and thistles. With little else to eat, the sheep will happily graze on these broadleaf plants. Over time, these weeds will become less and less prevalent in the pasture, thereby providing more weed control as a side benefit of the grazing system. When the weeds no longer shoot up, the grassy replacements are also appealing to the sheep, and they'll be sure to eat away that as well as the competition. There's a lot of different systems in place using sheep with cows, some with significantly more sheep than cows, but as a rule of thumb, you'd want one cow to one sheep ratio to start. Geese can be also used as a replacement for sheep, depending on your goals, at around a one to one pound ratio. So if your typical goose is like 30 pounds, you can get like four goose per sheep. 
They generally eat the same foods while obviously producing a little different produce, which further allows you to even run both animals through together if the geese will play nice. So if you want the geese for their eggs or their meat, and you only want one or two sheep, you can mix and match to what you need. Now ducks, on the other hand, play a different space between geese and chickens, not just in size, but also in dietary choice. Plus, you have to keep in mind their water needs, so it's a little bit different than just sticking them in with the geese. Yeah, on your farm, you have ducks, chickens, and a turkey. You don't have any geese. I don't remember seeing any geese. No, can't have geese. We have a bad history together. We can't go back. Do you want to talk about it? I was a kid. Do you want to bring it It up? It was a dark, dark day on the streets of East Providence. He got chased by a bunch of geese. It was a bad time. They were going to literally like rip him apart, or so he thought. Or so he thought. I actually mentioned this earlier. Are you gaslighting me? I actually, what? Saying that so I thought. Or so you thought. You thought, gee, you thought geese had teeth. Can't, hashtag cancel you thought, Elliot. You told me geese had teeth. They don't have teeth. Canceled. No. Oh, yeah. I mentioned this earlier this week, that geese are a marvel of nature and science because they create matter. They poop more matter than they eat. It's true. This is a joke I want to make there, but I'm not going to make it on the radio. Why not? <laughs> it's going to be a joke about somebody I know who poops a lot. No poop jokes. Geese poop no jokes. No poop jokes. So anyways, following the sheep or the... Ugh, geese come the chickens dealing with chickens in a leader follower system can be really challenging they don't respond well to electric fence as in they just don't get shocked by it and i don't know why somebody probably knows but they're like the pigeons that stand on the telephone lines and they just like hang out there and mock you that's what they do to your electric fence so you can't really work with electric fence you have to get the mesh and that means you now have to have two systems just because of chickens now, you can trim their wings or something like that, and that, that has some effect. I won't disagree, but it's not really sufficient. So you really have to stick with them, the electric mesh netting. So that means you have to rotate them through with a separate fencing system than the rest of the animals you're working with. So that can become a really big challenge in terms of how you might be operating. And especially if you're working on a big site, that starts to take up a lot of your day where you might have four or five other species running through that you can use this one same paddock with, and then the chickens come through and they need something entirely different. So that's just something to be aware of. But as they come through after the sheep and everyone else, there really isn't a whole lot going on and the paddock has been pretty much well broken down. And the chickens come through and scratch everything up and break down the manure, eat the insects that are hanging out, and pretty much pick anything that's been left on the site before you want to let it rest for a while. So chickens, whether they're egg layers or meat birds, are really simple to raise. And while there's no rule of thumb for how many chickens per cow, it gets a little complicated because traditionally chickens, unlike sheep or cows, require a lot more in terms of supplemental feed. So obviously fewer chickens would be supported without supplemental feed, especially at the end of a very complicated leader follower system. If we were to use like AU measurements, those animal unit measurements to compare volume of consumption of chickens versus say pig, a pig has 0.4 AUs while a chicken is around 0.014, which would give you a figure of around 28 chickens per pig. Now, a rule of thumb for chickens, just another piece of data to kind of use to weigh and kind of ballpark this, is that with supplemental food, a chicken usually should have around four square feet of range space for an egg-laying chicken, and a non-free-range chicken 
eats around five ounces of protein heavy food. So trying to convert this to free range is tough, but if half a chicken's diet is from the range, that means they probably need around 15 square feet per chicken per day of fresh range, given their high protein and calcium demands in order to lay high quality eggs. We'll cover in a future episode why it's important to consider targeting chickens not for their egg color or volume, but their ability to forage and lay a fair, but not a ton of amount of eggs, and their ability to be kept in a system like this. So to bring it all back using these assumptions, and these are really just back of the napkin assumptions, you're probably looking at close to 10 or 15 chickens per pig. If you're doing your chicken math, Elliot, Animal what algebra. At? What are we at? You, I failed out of our algebra class. You did. The math guy. You did. I believe I walked in. The teacher like he told me you aside and was like, you should probably go. And I was he, like, I should probably to, go. He told you to leave. The irony is that I'm an accountant now, but you know, chicken math guy. He was, a bad, a-, he was a bad teacher. What do you want? <laughs> so let's see. We got one cow and that gives us two pigs. And then we have two turkeys and then one sheep and round about 20 chickens, 20 to 30 chickens. Sounds about right. But shouldn't ask me to correct that because I don't know anything about math. Yeah, just look at your backyard and start counting stuff. I can't. I don't want to know. <laughs> You'll be out there tomorrow. So that's a lot of little piggy banks that we got to store our nutrients and to, again, keep nutrients within the system so that it keeps coming back every year. Yeah. So like when we think about this, it's really important to think about finding that equilibrium that allows us to require minimum inputs. So we're trying to make it so that the system is sustainable and we're not bringing in tons of feed. Now, this is obviously not perfect, and we're talking about a mature pasture. You know, if you have a bare woods that doesn't have any grass and there's no trees that have leaves that are within access, this doesn't matter. You have to build up to that system. This is when that system's at full capacity. And that's what we really have to understand is that this is a, a process and, again, very much more of an art than a science. And this is just a rough framework of understanding. But using that rough framework, we can think about Traditionally, if one acre could carry one cow, by doing this multi-species grazing system, we might be able to get one and a half acres that can carry all these other animals. Sure, we're not just adding animals to the cows. We're, we might need a little bit more land to do that, but we're getting a lot more per pound out of an acre than alternatively. So yeah, let's wrap up this weird parade of animals. The last one that we haven't talked about and why we've kind of done our math without it is the goat. They are without a doubt the animal that is best able to produce high quality meat and dairy products on the worst, shittiest forage. They can eat like raspberry bushes and poison ivy and they'll gain weight, produce surplus milk, and give you a kid or two a year. A goat's ability to eat almost anything is what has led to countless images of kids books with that bearded goat eating tin cans. The goat's ability to thrive on almost anything is its greatest strength or its greatest curse. Goats can be really useful to a site when you want something to get cleared through, whether that's multiflora roses or autumn olive or whatever it might be. However, goats can really be the bane of any farmer. If you have like a really nice apple orchard nearby, the goats are gonna get in it. You're gonna find a goat on a branch. Like there's no way around it. It's what they do. They can escape from anything and they will get around anything. Further, it's really important to understand that, historically speaking, goats have been the last animal to live on a landscape before total desertification, probably because everything else at that point had died off and they're the only ones that can still survive on the landscape. 
So I don't really recommend goats in an agricultural system that's not mature. So it's fine if you want to fence them off in a pen, but in a grazing system, it's not a great idea. There's just too much risk running goats through while you're still building out that system, especially if you don't have a lot of experience using them. It can be done and done well, but you have to know what you're doing with them. Yeah, that's metal as shit. I can see why Baphomet's goat-headed image could be seen as like the boon of the Dark Lord, because Black Phillip brings the ruckus and the desert. Beezlebah. I hate it here, I hate it here, I hate it here. <laughs> While that seemed like a lot for sure, it probably didn't seem overly impossible to wrap your head around. Right, Elliot? Yeah. Cool. It's all pretty logical, and you don't necessarily need to know why the order is suggested. Like, you don't need to know, like, the mouth form or anything like that about the animals to understand why they're grazing the way they do. But to just really understand this rotational process and generally what the animals eat and what the benefits of each different type of animal are. Now, you might have thought it was a little bit weird that we didn't talk about, like, running sheep and goats together or in succession, since they'll both pretty much eat anything to an extreme. Obviously, sheep are not as bad. And there's a reason for that. And it's that sheep and goats share the same internal parasites, as do pigs and chickens. Some parasites can exist outside of their host and stay out in the landscape as a dehydrated cyst. The best way to limit parasites in a multi-species livestock operation is to understand what the potential parasites are, understand those life cycles, and to not combine livestock with similar parasites in the same or even the following paddock. Always have a species break between the host species and the next susceptible species. Parasite problems can also be limited by maintaining a diverse pasture mix and especially using a mix that include perennial plant species that are known to be parasitics. Some of these species include wormwood, members of the sage family, garlic, fennel, and further, even tree leaves. So we haven't talked much, and we're gonna in a few episodes, about utilizing tree hay or tree fodder to feed our livestock, but many types of trees like walnuts and hickory species, as well as things like willow, are great at controlling parasites. Further, if winter squash and pumpkins are grown on the farm, Rejects can be fed to livestock both for their carbohydrates and mineral gain, as well as the anti-parasitic effects of the seed skin. So that's it. You just you don't let them just run free. They're going through in a certain succession and order because if we know what specialization each species has and can sort of maximize uh, the output from that, then that's what makes this you know animal husbandry and like agriculture. Yeah. So we're. If we think about the stacking of these animals, like we had talked about earlier on, trying to integrate these different concepts, the silvopasture, multi-species grazing, key line designs, and water management, layering all of these over one another can be a bit overwhelming if you don't think about it in the right order. And following the scale of permanence we covered way back in the site planning episode, we really tried to start this process of envisioning how these play together. For example, in a simple beef leader follower system, you've got the young stock separated from the older animals. Two active paddocks worth of movable fence need to be maintained. When pigs are added to the system, since they're significantly shorter than cows, you may have to add another strand of fence wire that's really low because you want it to be at their eye height or their nose height, where they're going to get zapped the best from that wire. Now if you add sheep, you may need a third strand at their height to keep the animals from not stepping over the pig height and going under the cow height. Further, when we start thinking about things like adding chickens, then you have a whole different type of fencing system. 
Now, when the farm is designed in order to optimize water capture through things like swales or terraces or near contour, more fence posts are needed in order to work around the curves rather than traditional straight lines. This is even more necessary if you're putting trees on the contour lines, especially if they need to be protected from grazers. So now you've got all these different pieces and these layers adding up, and you have to have the right framework to keep all of this on track. Things start going off the rails when you don't understand the fundamentals, which is what we've really been covering throughout the podcast. So at this point, you're probably thinking that all of this is making some sense, but the challenge really becomes about implementation. What comes first, the grazers or the trees? How do we protect the trees as the grazers work their way through? It's one thing to take an orchard and to let animals have at the grasses flowing through the alleys. It's another to take a couple acres of grasslands, or even more challenging, an unproductive forest, and turning it into a multifaceted food system that improves the local ecology. And the conversation is a long, complicated one, where there isn't a clear of an answer as we're doing here. It'll depend on your comfort with animals, the soil quality, the size of the site, how much you want to annoy your neighbors, the money you're working with, and so on. So I'll say this, expect to make mistakes and don't trust anyone who tells you there's a right way without having seen the specific site you're working on. If the soil is degraded, no amount of watering is going to help those trees grow large enough to shade the soil and to add enough biomass to allow for grasses to take over within a reasonable amount of time. If you don't spend the time to learn and deal with animals, them escaping and getting comfortable handling them, even if they're at your neighbor's yard, you're never going to get to a point where you will keep your trees protected. These systems are complicated, and often you'll feel like you're constantly juggling and dropping pieces as you try to make the systems come together, because what we're trying to do is essentially accelerate natural systems through supplemental feed for our livestock and managed planting to increase biomass and diversity while jumping for succession while also at the same time keeping a system mostly closed. We're trying to make 100 years of natural succession happen in like 25 years. Of course it's going to be hard and messy. Yeah, I do that all the time. I tell nature like, you know, hurry up. I don't have have time for this. I got one lifetime, not eons, right? Give me your sweet treasures, nature. Or drink. I mean, that's what I do to cope. Does Lowry's have a beer yet? Sponsored by Lowry's Lager. I'm trying to think of like peanuts instead of salted peanuts, use Lowry's. Why is that not a thing? That's what? like good beer. Good Salt beer, flavored good, beer? Good be- No, I'm talking <laughs> peanuts and beer, fool. Oh. Like bar nuts, bar nuts, tree nuts, drop nuts. Elliot's obsessed with nuts. I don't know. Good protein. With all that said, what are your options? So you want to get some animals grazing. You've got a large backyard of sad looking forest with some grassy spots. What do you do? If it's your first time dealing with animals, start small. Chickens, ducks, geese, get used to the idea of handling them, and they won't do too much damage, except for those fucking geese. This is a great time that if you need to cut down some stuff, get it done. Work your way up. If you've got trees, start them in planters if you can. Buy yourself an extra year or two before they go in the ground so they're stronger and more resilient, and the animals can graze the lands and increase the soil biology and organic matter. When the trees go in, tree guards are a great option. If you don't want to buy tree guards, you've got a couple different options. You can get some old PVC and cut it in half and then drill it back together, or you can take old fencing and just tie it up. This way the tree will 
continue to get airflow and be protected from animals picking at the bark. Keep in mind though, as you've got these trees and they're protected from the animals, so the animals aren't grazing there, you have to start thinking about how are you going to clean the grasses and all of the other things growing around the trees. You can just cut them down and just let them fall and, and mulch where the trees are. But this is just a basic idea of how to think about this process, what you can and should be thinking about to compartmentalize these two different projects that will eventually become one bigger picture. And in the next episode, we'll talk a bit about that bigger picture and what these systems look like in practice, what species are used, and some examples of how these systems can look when they're successful. This episode reminds me of two things. Like this is all, we also mention um, that we're putting some of the theory that we talk about on the podcast into practice on Andy's farm, and I think this fits in pretty nicely because this is literally what you're trying to do. And when you first started telling me about this, you know, over five years ago, I didn't know what to expect or what you had planned. But as it's starting to come together now, I, I sort of am seeing how it fits together and you know, the work that you did and the foresight that you had putting this all together before you just started cutting trees down and throwing animals in your backyard. You mean that's not what I did? It, it is exactly what you did, but you learned along the way. You're right. You're going to make mistakes. The second thing, this episode reminds me of that one time uh, I was grade school or before middle school where I went to the petting zoo and they kicked me out because I started showing kids where to get the prime choice cuts from the... Hopefully you found this information accessible, interesting, and not too daunting. And if you did, please give us a review on iTunes. And if you can, give us some support on Patreon. Until next time, this is Andy, and this is the Poor Pearls Almanac.